Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. I'm blessed to have you with me today and listening in to what we're going to talk about. I'm also blessed, as we always are, to be part of the Texas Scorecard Network and to have them as a sponsor of the Liberty Cafe. I encourage you to go to texasscorecard.com and listen in and read about what they're doing. Because every day they're fighting for our liberty, your liberty and mine. Speaking of fighting for liberty, I want to take us down this path of talking about simplicity versus complexity. When you read the Bible, the Bible isn't meant to be understood the first time you read it. That's kind of a surprising thing, maybe, for some of us. Because we've been reading the Bible for so long, it seems like some things are just so simple and straightforward. And in fact, the Bible tells us that the, there is a perspicuity of Scripture. That means that there, it is clear in many ways. But yet, when we read something like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. It, it seems simple and straightforward, but unless you understand about original sin, unless you understand about sin itself, unless you understand about God's laws, what he requires of us, unless you understand about Jesus's perfection, unless you have those kind of background uh, understandings, you're going to miss a lot about three John 3.16. And that really goes throughout the whole Bible, right? Why is there this long genealogy of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew? Right. Well, it's really to establish him as the Messiah. His, he comes from a royal line of David. But that takes a little bit of reading and understanding to do it. So we read the Bible as children, and then we read it as adults over and over again. But yet, the concepts in Scripture, even though we need to practice doing that, are really pretty simple and clear. We're sinners. We're facing the wrath of God. We need to repent of our sins, or else we're going to go to hell. Things like that are very simple, right and wrong. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife or home or livestock. Thee, thou shall not steal. All these different types of things are very clear and straightforward in Scripture. But what we have in the world today is the world trying to make simple things complex. Now, why would the world want to do that? Why would the world... And and this is for unbelievers. It could be even conservative unbelievers, although you know, they're not quite as bad usually as liberal unbelievers at this. But still, unbelievers want to make the world complex. Why do they want to do that? Well, because by making the world complex, they avoid responsibility or they attempt to avoid responsibility for what they've been doing. Because, and of course we can't do that before God, he can figure all this out, but before the world anyway, before the citizens of the United States, where we most of us live, 
they don't want to be held accountable for what they're doing. And so they make it complex and trying to make us not see what they're up to. And so what I'd like to do today is just go through three different issues really quickly and talk about them in the context of simplicity versus complexity and see how the left, the progressives, are trying to complicate this so that we can't see what they're doing. So let me start with inflation. If you go back to the 1960s, the definition of inflation is really straightforward. It's the fact that the government is printing money, printing money that's not backed by gold or wealth, but just printing money, basically. Here's what Henry Hazlitt, who um, wrote a great book, Economics in One Lesson, said about it in 1960. Inflation is the increase in the supply of money and credit. Straightforward. The government prints more money, more money chasing after the same amount of goods. Prices go up. The value of the money that you hold goes down. As clear as a bell. Other people, the American College Dictionary, the American Heritage Dictionary, says things very similar. For instance, the American Heritage Dictionary says an abnormal increase in available currency or credit beyond the proportion of available goods resulting in a sharp and continuing rise in prices. And, but even though they say abnormal, yeah, they're, they're even a little confused there, but, but it's straightforward. The government's printing more money, and the result is increase in price levels. Well, here, let's go to today and look at a couple of um, dictionaries. So here's the American Heritage Dictionary again, except in 2010. And what it says is the rate at which the general level of prices for goods and services is rising, and subsequently purchasing power is falling. Do you see what happened there? And I can show you a lot of other places. This is the same place. High school economics textbooks, wherever you want to go, it's the same thing. The printing of money no longer has any place in the concept of inflation. Inflation today is simply the increase in prices. And so what we have, of course, is a world today specifically with prices rising very quickly. But if inflation is just the rise in prices, who do we blame for that? Uh, well, we might blame Putin for it, for instance. Now, he's, he's attacked the, the Ukraine. He's shut off oil. Or maybe it's Joe Biden who's shut off oil, whoever it is. But but that could be the case or there's supply disruptions, so prices are going up, supply chain disruptions, all these different kinds of things. And so we don't really know who to blame. It's bad weather. We don't know who to blame. But what if inflation is really the printing of money and it's the printing of money that makes prices all go up on a general level? Well, if that's the case, we know exactly who to blame. It's the politicians who run Washington, D.C and the people they put in the Federal Reserve to print money. And, of course, these days, they don't even have to print money to cause inflation. They All they have to do is just hit a few buttons on the computer, and voila, there's all this more money, and there's more inflation, and prices go up. But they, they've made this change so that we don't have to worry about 
bothering them because we can go blame other people, but they don't get blamed themselves. But but the the truth of the matter is very clear and plain on this. I think one example that will help us understand this is that over time, really in one sense, regardless of who's to blame, but if we know who to blame, it, it, this statistic helps us look at that. So over the years, the federal government has changed the definition of inflation. And several changes took place. But if you go back to 1980, there have been major changes since then. And that really reflects greatly in how we measure inflation today. So, for instance, the, uh, the inflation rate today, this is being reported in May, is, is around 8% or so within a, you know, a little bit right of there. Well, if we go back and measure inflation the way they did in 1980, the inflation rate would be 17%. Now, I'm not saying that they couldn't have improved the consumer inflation measure that they use in the federal government. Nonetheless, every single adjustment they've made to it uh, since 1980 has taken inflation down not up. Uh, you have to wonder about that just a little bit. So they make inflation very complex, both in how they define it and how they measure it. And so we're left sitting around, who are we to blame for high prices? Well, it's not Vladimir Putin and it's not supply chain disruptions in China, although don't, I'm not trying to get China off the hook here. It's politicians in Washington, D.C., and it's not just Joe Biden. Donald Trump was part of this and, and President Bush before him. They just keep printing money so they can just keep spending money. And inflation goes out the roof, and, and we have this huge national debt. So let's move on to the question of abortion. What's going on with that from this the construct of simplicity versus complexity. Well, let's look just at the idea of when life begins. So science wants to make it very complicated for that. And, and here's this guy, Howard Schneiderman. He's a professor of biology. And this is what he says about when life begins. Actually, he doesn't define when life begins, he de defines when personhood begins. And let me talk about that right now, or read his quote right now. Well, when does human personhood begin has now a new urgency in the context of the revised personhood movement. And I hope that public education on the scientific notions of personhood may finally quash the idea that a zygote is a person. It's actually a great opportunity since the case for zygote rights is very weak. I really can't tell you when personhood begins, but I can say with absolute certainty that there is no consensus among scientists. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, it, it's just so crazy the way these people are trying to confuse everything about when life begins and what abortion is really about. 
let's now listen to this uh, little bit of audio. We're going to listen to audio from the uh, Dobbs argument. This is the case that was before the Supreme Court today. Uh, it was argued earlier this year where about the Mississippi case where they're prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks, which is much less than any other state in the nation. And by the, actually, by the time this goes live, well, probably not, because this is actually going to go live tomorrow. But very shortly, we could have a decision by the Supreme Court in this case. But here, here's how this lady who is arguing for the abortion clinic, the pro-abortion side, wants to describe abortion and what it looks like. If I were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion, um, is it privacy, is it autonomy, what would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a pre-viability pregnancy. I think it continues to be liberty, and the right exists whatever level of generality the court applies. There was um, a tradition under the common law for centuries of women being able to end their pregnancies. But in addition, when it comes to decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, the court has done the analysis at a higher level of generality, and that makes sense because otherwise the Constitution would reinforce the historical discrimination against women. So do you get that? What's going on here is this lady, this this attorney who's arguing before the Supreme Court, obviously a very bright, talented uh, young lady who has built up a career to the point that she can now argue before the Supreme Court. So intelligence isn't an issue here. What's at stake here, what's the problem is, is the heart. She wants to make abortion about liberty. Right? It's the liberty for a woman to challenge the state and not being restricted by the state. Well, that, that's kind of funny because the liberty she's talking about here is the liberty to kill a baby. Right? So it's actually not very funny at all. It's, it's very serious. And, and here's just one example of how serious this is. This is um, from Jason Riley, who's a, who's a black gentleman. And he uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal. And this is what he's talking about when he talks about abortion. What's not in doubt is the outsized toll that abortion is taking on the black population. Post row. In New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than born alive each year. And the abortion rate among black mothers is more than three times higher than it is for white mothers. According to a city health department re report released in May, between 2012 and 2016, black mothers terminated 136,426 pregnancies and gave birth to 118,127 babies. By contrast, birth, births for sur, far surpassed abortions among whites, Asians, and Hispanics. And so we, we have all this argument about racism and what's causing racism and how blacks are being put down. 
but the the number one racist policy in America is abortion killing black babies so that there were more black babies killed in New York during this period of time than there were born. That's a serious problem. Yet we have a very clear statement of what's the problem with that coming from this American College of Pediatricians. So this obviously is a not a mainstream group of pediatricians, but in March 2017, they put out this very clear statement about the beginning of life. The predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception, fertilization. At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole genetically distinct individual zygotic living human organism, a member of the species Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow and develop. The difference between the individual and its adult stage and in its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. This statement focuses on the scientific evidence of when an individual human life begins. So unlike uh, Dr. Schneiderman, professor of biology, these pediatricians get it straight, as does Jason Riley. Right? Very clear, very simple, not as complex as the left would have it. So since we're talking about racism a little bit here, let's just finally dig into the issue of black poverty. So why do we see more poverty, higher unemployment rates among blacks, particularly black teenagers, black male teenagers, but blacks generally? Well, of course, we know the answer to that. Racism, right? White supremacy, white privilege. Right. And here's a here's a quote from, um, well, you know, I can't remember who I took the quote from, but let me read it to you anyway. In the grand narrative act, do remember that this is from the Washington Post in the grand narrative of freedom and civil rights. The disadvantages that persist are invisible precisely because people in power continuously innovated new forms of discrimination. African-Americans seeking Home loans found themselves red lines, ineligible for credit, because the government would not guarantee the loans. Housing costs rose without giving black residents a stake in the value of their homes, while neighborhoods decayed from a lack of investment. Real estate professionals and developers acted hand in glove with racist lending policies, hemming black families into neighborhoods where disadvantages compounded one another. So that's what the Washington Post says. It's these racist policies that are all throughout our culture because the people in power, which are apparently whites, but, you know, it's, it's kind of strange because the, the people in power in Washington, D.C., you know, there's a lot of whites there, obviously, but, but they're mostly liberals. And if they're not liberals, they're at least progressive Republicans and like Mitch McConnell, those kind of things, although he's white. So, but they seem to walk in lockstep up there, the blacks and the black progressives and AOC and Hispanic progressives, they all seem to say the same thing. So it's not clear to me that it's really a white problem, uh, a white racist problem. And as a matter of fact, uh, Thomas Sowell, who is a black economist, talks about this and he, and he says, no, it's not about white racism. It's about government. 
It's about government policies. It's about culture. It's about economics. But it's not about white racism. And here's what he says in his really great book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. If you haven't read it, I highly suggest you do so. He writes, the rise of blacks into professional or other high-level occupations was greater in the years preceding the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than in the years following passage of that act. We could also add in there the uh, the, the Great Society uh, developed by Lyndon Johnson and, and welfare and Medicaid and those types of things. And so he, he goes on and, and talks about uh, this and, and looks at this from um, from a historic perspective. And let me just finish a little bit more of this. So as of 1940, more than four-fifths of black families, 87%, in fact, lived below the official poverty level. By 1960, 20 years later, before the Civil Rights Act and, and welfare came into place, this had fallen to 47%. In other words, the poverty rate among blacks had been nearly cut in half before either the Civil Rights Revolution or the Great Society social programs began in the 1960s. The continuation of this trend can hardly be automatically credited to these political developments, though such claims are often made. By 1970, the poverty rate of blacks had fallen to 30%, a welcome development, but by no means unprecedented. A decade after that, with the rise of affirmative action in the intervening years, the poverty rate among black families had fallen to 29%. Even if one attributes all this to 1% decline to government policy, it does not compare to the dramatic declines in poverty among blacks when the only major change was the rise in their education. So basically what we have is that government intervention through the Civil Rights Act and the welfare state destroyed what was great momentum in improving the life of blacks. Uh, so if we want to improve poverty among blacks, improve employment among young black teenagers, to help young black males stop killing each other in Chicago, for instance, what do we need to do? Well, we don't need to eradicate white racism what we need to do is eradicate these government programs that have locked them into poverty. Now, we have to be careful with that term locked in because individuals can act in their own best interest. But what tends to happen in these situations is that children who grow up, black children in particular, who grow up in terrible public schools, which is most of them, really, we're going to get to that in places where they can't get jobs, in part because of the minimum wage by the federal government, in part in, in, in places where there's no father in the home because welfare pays mothers to have babies without fathers around. You, you take those and a lot of other instances, that's where black poverty has come from. It's not because of slavery that was ended 160 years ago or so. It's not even because of Jim Crow laws that were ended about 60 years ago or so. It's because of the welfare state and liberalism have taken over uh, our society and our government policy and have locked blacks in particular into, many of them anyway, into years of poverty. Well, thank you for listening to Excellent Thought today. 
I'm always glad to be here with you. I hope this idea of simplicity versus complexity uh, rang a bell with you, uh, made you start thinking about some of these things, because we can see this all over society, right, where the progressives and liberals are trying to hide from us what they're doing. And so that being the case, I'm glad to be here with you today. And thanks for listening. And thanks also to Texas Scorecard for being our sponsor. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.